listening to the Paul McGuire report on Paul McGuire. Uh, as you know, I've been working for quite a long time on a brand new book called Power from on High, which is currently at the printer. So that means those of you that have already pre-ordered the book, you've got a financial discount, and it won't be all that long before your copy is mailed to you. Also, um, you can still take advantage of the pre-order discount if you order now. Okay, the reason I mentioned the book was this. One of the primary themes of the book is my personal biographical struggle and search from God, how I went from being an atheist, a secular humanist, and how I then looked into science heavily, and then I got into New Age techniques and things of that nature, and then majoring in altered states of consciousness and filmmaking at the University of Missouri. And I had a tremendous bias and prejudice against Christianity. Now, the reason I called the book Power from One High is I've had many, I don't want to say just the word experiences, but for lack of better words, I'll, I'll use it. I have had many experiences with the Holy Spirit over uh, walking with the Lord for many decades of my life. and. The thing that I've noticed in my own life and ministry and that I've noticed in other people's lives who are Christians is that when we uh, are walking and we're filled with the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to use some terms that I use interchangeably because there are several other things that I learned early on as a Christian, and one is uh, I, I found myself as a very young Christian in all kinds of church environments where there would be these intense debates about things like speaking in tongues and the baptism of the Holy Spirit and stuff. And, and all I heard was arguing from both sides, by the way, from both sides, or pride. Uh, and I don't know why you would have pride about speaking in tongues, and I don't mean to disparage gift, but any idiot can speak in tongues. It's not something that you boast about. So let's pause on that. And then jumping into the area of Bible prophecy, once again, I found myself in Christian environments where people all around me were debating endlessly about the timing of the rapture. Now, don't get me wrong. All of these questions from a theological standpoint are vitally important. I uh, taught Bible prophecy or eschatology as a professor at a major Christian seminary and university. I also uh, taught ecclesiology at a major, as a professor in a major Christian university. So I'm fairly well read, in, in well read, uh, and have experienced interactions with people in every. Uh, every different theological category or position. But the, the overarching thing that would bother me was the fact that, and this reached an epiphany when I would first moved to uh, California with my wife, Chris, uh, 
to produce feature films and all science fiction feature films in Hollywood. And this reached an epiphany because I realized that these were valid and important subjects theologically or biblically to debate. But I wasn't interested in, in debating them. I mean, I will give an answer to somebody if I have time. I'll give them, I will give them a scriptural reason or a biblical reason for why I believe the things that I believe. Now, you may not agree with me, but you certainly wouldn't be able to dismiss uh, my theological arguments or the validity of the theological arguments. But the overarching thing that bothered me was that it was so obvious to me as a Christian who was formerly a radical in the counterculture, it was so obvious to me that America was under the most serious and major attack as a nation, as a sovereign nation, our Constitution was under attack, our Bill of Rights, our economic system. There was a planned destruction uh, of the middle class and the working class. There was the penetration of literally a globalist elite invasion into our nation that these, these super wealthy uh, and the richest people in the world were organizing to bring down the American way of life. The attack was against the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and a Judeo-Christian belief system was under an all-out attack. And now that all-out attack is at its, not at its peak, but it's an all-time high. So in light of the fact that Christianity and the Bible and Jesus Christ and salvation and the Word of God is targeted for total and absolute decimation and destruction, I found personally that arguing uh, theologically about, you know, can there be a great awakening or not, and, and similar arguments, although valid, I didn't have the luxury of spending my time arguing. And I'm not bashing anybody else, but I didn't have the luxury of doing that because we are in an all-out spiritual war for the survival of our nation. And so that is where my focus was then and is now. And over the last three years, starting with the uh, COVID thing, um, I spent all my time researching, praying, reading the Bible, studying the Bible, seeking God, and crying out to God, asking him, that he, asking him to give me wisdom and answers for his people in these last days, and then to communicate uh, whatever wisdom I was able to derive from the Lord, which ultimately had to be biblical, uh, to communicate that to as many Christians as I could as fast as possible. Because the alternative is, unless God intervenes with great power, make no mistake about this, unless God intervenes with great power in our nation right now, our nation will collapse as a free nation. We will become some kind of abhorrent third world dictatorship. So I cried out to God for three years, pulled back from doing uh, most public speaking. Uh, most media interviews, etc. And as the Lord began to review with me my own 
spiritual biography. And I was crying out to the Lord. All of a sudden, truths that I knew along my journey with Christ and truths that I discover in the beginning of my journey with Christ, God brought them back to me, and he brought them back in a fresh aliveness, uh, and in, in like a fresh revelation. So I'll just give you one uh, verse. Jesus Christ, before he ascended into heaven, told his disciples, his followers, to go to Jerusalem, to go tarry in Jerusalem until until the Father sends you power from on high. And I, I read that, you know, thousands of times. And I understood it thousands of times. But at that moment, that verse and, and many uh, other verses just became so incredibly obvious, so incredibly non-confused, and so incredibly clear to me of what Christ was saying. I mean, it was like as, it was as clear as, as a, a bright, well-lit day. It was just completely, I was completely able to get what Christ was saying even though it was so simple, so childlike. Christ was simply telling his disciples, I'm going to paraphrase, you can't do anything. You can't accomplish the Great Commission. You can't win souls for Christ. You can't make uh, disciples of all nations. You you can't uh, reclaim your nation for Christ. You can't win the spiritual battle that is threatening to destroy America. In, in, In effect, Jesus was telling us, you can't do anything. You can't do anything if you're trying to do it on your own strength and intellect and human energy and money and cleverness or whatever. You're not going to succeed in the mission that I've called you to. That simple. And then Christ simply said to his disciples, and by the way, you and I may not be part of the 12 disciples, but we are Christ's disciples. Let's not forget that. The word disciple simply means someone who chooses to pick up the disciplines of Christ. So a believer, what separates a believer from a disciple is a disciple of Jesus Christ is one who chooses to pick up and follow the disciplines of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ said to his disciples and followers that they needed to go to Jerusalem and tarry there, wait on the Lord there, until the Father sends them power from on high. So what Jesus was saying that it is a prerequisite before you could go into all the world and try to win souls, etc. You're not going to accomplish anything unless you're clothed with power from on high. Now that is so simple. So transparent. There's absolutely no way you can miss the intention of what Jesus is saying to you and me. There's no way you can miss it unless you have an internal pre-existing bias, which we could also call a stronghold. Unless you have a pre-existing internal bias in which you justify saying, well, that wasn't meant for uh, Christians today. 
Now, I don't, you know, I understand a lot of people uh, are literally married to that theological belief. And my intention is not to have an argument. My intention is to present the truth of God's Word, to rightly divide the Word of God. Why would Christ tell us to wait, but not tell us, tell the, the disciples to go to Jerusalem, and wait in Jerusalem, and tarry in Jerusalem until the Father sent uh, the promise of the Spirit or power from on high upon them? Why would Jesus Christ say that? He, would, he said it very simply, because you can't accomplish anything that God has called you to accomplish. It's impossible to do anything for Jesus Christ apart from moving in the power of the Holy Spirit. Any more than when they crucified Jesus Christ on a cross for our sins, and they nailed Christ to a cross, he was dead. The only thing that made Jesus undead, if you will, was the Father supernaturally resurrected Christ from the dead. And that's what separates Jesus from every guru and spiritual teacher and whatever. The miracle of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what separates Jesus from every other religious teacher. So, when you look at, look at it like that, it's, it's very simple. The Church has numerous theological terms for stating that. Things, things like, well, the gifts are not for today. Uh, a cessationist theology, which says that, you know, miracles, signs, and wonders, and the power of the Holy Spirit, they were only uh, available to the disciples because the disciples were a special and a select group. And since we're not part of the original disciples, we don't have access to those supernatural miracles, gifts, and supernatural power. Now, the problem with developing a theological perspective like that is that it arbitrarily turns the off switch on God's power in the lives of believers and in the lives of the body of Christ when it is most needed in human history which is right now, as we're in the last days, confronting the end of the age and the tribulation period and everything else. When it is most needed, why would God, God arbitrarily just shut down all the spiritual power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Holy Spirit and uh, power from on high and things like that? You see, why did Jesus spend all that time teaching his disciples, teaching his followers how to save souls, how to perform miracles, how to miraculously get their prayers answered? Jesus did an extensive discipleship program with many, many of his followers, not just the 12 disciples. So when he ascended into heaven and they tarried in Jerusalem, God the Father poured out the Holy Spirit on them. So they were clothed with power from on high. They were clothed with power from on high. It was the fact that they were clothed with power from on high that made their miraculous ministry 
so powerful that it transformed the world for Jesus, and it transformed the mightiest empire on earth at that time, which was the Roman Empire. The disciples, the Christians, the followers of Jesus Christ could have done nothing, nada, without the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. So the problem, theologically, that has to be addressed, honestly, is why would Jesus devote such an incredible amount of time teaching his disciples and his followers how to minister supernaturally, how to walk in the Spirit, how to perform signs, wonders, and miracles as tools of salvation, as tools of supernatural deliverance from bondage and sickness and all kinds of things. Why would Jesus Christ have spent so much time training his disciples for a long-term ministry that this ministry of Christ moving through his disciples, the church, has been going on uh, for over 2,000 years? So there's a problem with that, because that that would be to assume God is a complete, irrational, uh, and almost an absurd God. Why Why put God's people through all this training and Bible teaching? Why give them the Great Commission? If, if God did not give his people the power, the supernatural power, power from on high, to carry out the Great Commission, which is winning souls, to carry out making disciples of all nations, that means affecting an entire nation with the gospel of Jesus Christ. None of those things that God was calling his people to do could have been done at all unless they had first not received the power of the Holy Spirit. So Christ's ministry was in part a preparatory period. So to argue, and I believe it's an irrational argument, I'm not trying to attack you, I just simply believe it's an irrational argument, to argue that Christ goes through all this laborious process of training and teaching his disciples about how to walk in the supernatural power of God, and then to say that the Bible says, that those miracles, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the signs and wonders, they ended with the first church. Well, if they ended with the first church, that was a very short period. That was a very short period of time between when Christ ascended, between when the early church received power from on high. It doesn't make any sense that Jesus would pull the plug on the release of the supernatural power of God. It doesn't make any sense at all. In fact, it makes no sense. Because when, ask yourself the question, when would power from one high, the power of the Holy Spirit, legitimate signs and wonders, uh, saving souls through the power of the Holy Spirit, Spirit, when would that be needed the most? When would be the most critical time for the church and Christians to be operating in the supernatural power of God? When would be the the, the most needed, the time it is most needed? Well, it's obvious. The time that it is most needed is the time we're in. That's, you know, I, I titled one of my recent books. We are now in, quote, the greatest battle for the hearts and minds of mankind in the history of the world. Right now, we're in the last days, and we're in the greatest battle for the hearts and minds of mankind in the history of the world. So does it make any sense at all 
biblically, that God will, would pull, pull the plug or turn the off switch on his supernatural power when his people are facing the greatest spiritual battle against the principalities and powers, Satan and the demonic forces in the history of the world? Does it make any sense at all that in the last days, as we're approaching the final battle, the ultimate battle, Armageddon, the second coming when Christ returns from heaven, descending on a white horse to defeat Satan, the Antichrist, and all those who have accepted the mark of the beast. Does it make sense that in this time period, or ramping up to this time period, that God would leave his church powerless? And the answer is absolutely not. And so, after praying and seeking the Lord continually, and crying out to God continually, my entire life, but especially during these last three years with COVID and all the nonsense going on. I was crying out to God. I was seeking God. And through a a series of circumstances, God brought back to me, to my heart, this basic foundational truth of Jesus, which is the necessity of being clothed with power from on high. He brought it back to me. And in a flash, in a a revelation of insight, I realized, it's so obvious, I said to myself, of course, of course the church is losing, to a large degree, the spiritual battle for America. Of course it is. Why? Because it is violating the fundamental precept of Jesus, which is it is attempting Christians, the Christian church, the evangelical church, the Bible-believing church, whatever you want to call it, in America is attempting to win the most ferocious spiritual war in the history of mankind, but we're attempting to win this war based on our human strength, our human intellect, uh, what money we have, our communications empires, uh, everything we're using in the battle in terms of priority is we're trying to do, we're trying to win the battle in our own strength. And we are rejecting, we are uh, refusing, and we're turning our backs on the supernatural power of God, being clothed with power from on high, which is the only power. It's because it's the power of Jesus Christ that can uh, destroy this satanic invasion attempting to eradicate our nation. Now, let's review this again. So that means, of course— Respected pollsters have told us that the fastest growing religion in America is witchcraft and Wicca tied with atheism. So atheism, witchcraft, or Wicca are the fastest growing religions in America. Christianity is not one of the fastest growing religions in America. Christianity is losing the numbers of uh, followers. Now, that's evidence, that's an indicator that we're losing the spiritual war at this moment. But here's the reason why. It's really very simple. We're we're losing the spiritual war primarily because we're neglecting to receive power from on high. We're neglecting to be clothed with power from on high. And without being clothed with power from on high, we can't do anything. I mean, that's a simple There's no way you can miss what Jesus is trying to tell us. So, we want a third great awakening. I want a third great awakening. I've been preaching about it for decades. And people inevitably 
don't read everything that I've said. They distort what I've said. They misunderstand what I've said. And, and I think the, the, the most egregious thing is they try to criticize me by arguing against an argument <laughs> that I never, I never put forth. I never put forth a, a, a particular argument in writing or speaking or whatever. And yet they're, they're trying to debate me or criticize me based on things that I never said. So, you know, I, I ignore it because I have to keep my eyes focused on Goliath, not these, these side little things. Okay, so what, what's the answer here? Almost all the time, I see, you know, people who believe this, and, and I will say this, okay, I can understand as a believer in Christ why my fellow believers in Jesus Christ would think in certain ways and would believe in certain ways. I can understand why. I'll give you one reason. A whole lot of what has been falsely claimed to be signs and wonders and miracles and the supernatural power of God in America, especially on television, a significant amount of it, not all of it, not all of it, but a significant and disturbing amount of it is hucksterism. It's showmanship. It's like a circus. It's a con job. It's, it's way out of line with the Bible. So I can understand why my thinking brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ would, would if, if that's what they're drawing their evidence from, I can understand why they believe what they believe. Because the only, no, the predominant representation uh, is a bunch of people acting like nuts. I understand that. And that has to be changed. Now, the other thing is, people want evidence. You say there's miracles, there's the miraculous. People want evidence. I totally agree. I'm, I'm suspicious of people who are always parading around the number of people that were miraculously healed. And I'm asking myself, okay, were they really healed? Do we have medical evidence afterwards that they had a legitimate problem or sickness and after a, a thorough medical uh, examination, the trained medical doctor uh, determined that their illness or whatever it was was gone? You know, you, you have proof to follow what you're claiming. And then people keep saying there can't be, the Bible says there can't be a uh, third great awakening. I hear that constantly. Now, I'm going to address that briefly, but I won't spend a whole lot of time on it unless uh, it's in a very uh, specific environment. But this is what I want to say about that. If it was true that there can't be a third great awakening, and the Bible says, which it does not, by the way, that there can't be a third great awakening. Um, where in the people are always saying that's what the Bible says. Where in the Bible does it say that? It doesn't say that in the Bible. You can look until you're blue in the face, and you will not come up. You're rightly dividing the Word of God with the Bible telling you there can't be revivals uh, after the ascension of Jesus Christ. What what is happening is, um, well, let me give you an example. That would be easier. Okay, so here's your proof that, that the Bible doesn't say that. The people who are saying that are getting confused with the passages in the Bible that warn against 
counterfeit revivals, false prophets, false teachers in the last days. Yes, the Bible does say that in the last days there will be counterfeit revivals and false prophets and and false teachers, etc. Okay, we're in agreement there because the Bible says that, but that's not all the Bible says. So if you arbitrarily stop there, you are not writing uh, uh, rightly dividing the Word of God. You've got to read the entire Word of God, not just cherry pick. And so what do we see? We see, well, first of all, we see the book of Acts, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then they would answer, but it says in the last days there won't be any revivals and stuff, or there can't be a third great awakening. No, it does not say that, and you need to rightly divide the Word of God. I'm not laughing at you. I'm just laughing in perplexity of the argument. The Bible says, for for example, in Acts chapter 2, which is quoted, Peter quoting from Joel chapter 2, they give us just, just one passage that deals with this. And you don't have the right to remove a major passage in the Bible quoted in Joel chapter 2, Joel the prophet, and quoted um, in the Bible. And, and I'm going to read you this right now. I'm going to open up the Bible. I'm going to read to you just one of many biblical statements saying, that there will be a great outpouring of the Spirit in the last days. And you have no right to cherry-pick that out just because it bugs you. And I have no right to cherry-pick out, nor would I want to, the warning against false prophets and stuff like that. It need, Believe me, it needs to be preached. All right, you're listening to the Paul McGuire Report. I'm Paul McGuire. We need to communicate this message as fast as possible, as far and wide as possible to ignite the authentic and biblical fires of a legitimate biblical third great awakening. And I need your help to do that. I need your support financially, your donations, and I need you to pray for me in this ministry, and I need you to volunteer and spread this message far and wide. If you're not going to partner with my ministry, then partner with another ministry that you believe in. But you can't ignore the fact that we're in a spiritual war, and if you believe uh, in the Christian ministry or minister that uh, you're listening to or watching to, then you need to stand, or pastor, then stand with them. Now, you can visit paulmcguire.us. You can donate there. All I ask is this. Ask God what he wants you to give and how much he wants you to give, and then radically obey him. And I wouldn't ask you this if I hadn't already radically obeyed God for the last 30-plus years. I've radically obeyed God because I've given God everything, 100%. Do you understand what I'm saying? 100%. That doesn't mean I don't own anything, because I do. But my time, uh, uh, extra monies, uh, my focus, my energy, my life, I have given it all. I've tithed, let's put it this way, I've tithed and given up my life to the Lord as an offering. But I need people to stand with me, because we either have a true biblical revival, or we lose our nation. So visit paulmcguire.us. That's paulmcguire.us. Make sure you get yourself a copy of Power from on High and the other books we have uh, for you at a discount. We'll be back in just a second. You're listening to the Paul McGuire Report. I'm Paul McGuire. 
okay, here is one proof among numerous proofs in the Bible telling us that the Bible does teach that there will be revivals and outpourings of the Holy Spirit in the last days. So you have to deal with it, as I have to deal with it. Whether It's not up to my opinion and your opinion, it's up to what the Word of God says. So in Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, they were there because Jesus told them to go to Jerusalem and tarry in Jerusalem until the Father poured out the promise of his Holy Spirit. Now watch what happens. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a mighty, of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then it goes into tongues, which um, that'll be a different subject because that's an entirely huge subject in and of itself. Right now, I want to focus on being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. So these disciples, right then and there, were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Okay, and then uh, there was the argument. There's a a number of theological questions and arguments, but I want to stay on being uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so they were kind of in an ecstatic state. They were what we would say today, high. Now, now they were joyous. They were uh, in, in ecstasy. And I want to be careful to distinguish those adjectives, uh, make a difference between those adjectives and things that imply that they were out of control or lewd or vulgar or, you know what I'm saying? One was a pure ecstasy. The, the other things are uh, ecstasy produced by darkness. Okay, so the people, there were people all around them, acute, they were disturbed by their over-enthusiastic and over-happy uh, conduct and behavior in the public. So, um, they accused them. Others mocking said they are full of new wine. So they accused the disciples of being drunk. That is exactly what happens today. When people indiscriminately tar and feather all revivals and accuse many revivals of being where the people are, it's, it's a counterfeit uh, revival because the people are acting like they're drunk, etc. Well, that's exactly what the critics in the Book of Acts said. Um, they are full of new wine, which means they were they, they, your disciples are drunk. They're crazy. That's the translation. My translation. Peter's sermon, okay? Now listen carefully what Peter said. Peter defended the behavior and the actions and the ecstasy of the early uh, disciples. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk. As you suppose, since since it is only the third hour of the day, but this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. So he's he's exhorting, he's challenging 
their theological attack of accusing the disciples of being drunk. He's saying they're not drunk. He's saying, wake up. Take the religious blinders and your bias off your eyes. Right in front of you, um, you're seeing a miracle, a miracle that was prophesied by the prophet Joel. And this is what Joel said. Listen carefully, starting in verse 17. And it shall come to pass in the last days, said God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men and your your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and maidservants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire, vapor of smoke, but the sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, so right here we have Peter we have Peter telling us from the Bible specifically that in the last days what was predicted by the prophet Joel will come to pass. This initially starts with the disciples obviously in the upper room, but it spreads and it has spread uh, in varying degrees to our present time period. And so, this right here is a biblical revival caused by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. That's a sign and wonder. Your young men shall see visions. That's a sign and wonder. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit in the last days where they prophesy is they're being clothed with power from on high. You got it? There's no way you can miss it unless you bend it, break it, and step on it. I will show you wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. This is not Satan. Do we agree? Blood and fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, this massive outpouring of the Holy Spirit was the birth of the church. The birth of the church. Now, it starts in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. That's where the church is born. But let me ask you a rhetorical question. Is the church, did the church die a year later? Because that's what, uh, that's what theologically is implied. When you say there can't be any more uh, third great awakenings and you know uh, biblical revivals, it stopped with the disciples. Well, where did it stop with the disciples? The disciples, oh, the whole mission of the disciples was to disciple and make other disciples. The whole mission of the disciples, uh, ordered by Jesus was they were supposed to duplicate themselves. So the revival goes on. How, how do you think this small group of people turned the mighty Roman Empire upside, upside down and, run, and won about 50% of the Roman Empire they led to Jesus Christ? How did it happen? Because they were powerless and trying to do it in the flesh? No. 
By this time, the church had grown. That means more and more and more and millions and millions of people were filled supernaturally with the power of the Holy Spirit. That filling of the power of the Holy Spirit gave them the power to overturn Rome supernaturally. I don't see how you, 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 you miss this. Now, let me add something else. This is a big topic to chew, and I'm just trying to establish some bullet points. Let's just take America. No, no, let's go back to Europe. In Europe, before the American Revolution, before 1776, you had probably the largest revival ignited, uh, and that was called the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. And, and they uh, severed their relationship with the Catholic Church, and they adopted the doctrine that we're saved by grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so the Protestant Reformation ignited a global revival that ultimately ignited a revival among the pilgrims and Puritans in the United States of America. So this massive global revival, signs and wonders, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, for those who say that it can't happen, there are people who adamantly say this cannot happen biblically. Well, what about the Protestant Reformation? The people saying that wouldn't even be born again without the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation, um, or what was partially called the European Reformation, was a massive revival movement in uh, Christianity in the 16th century. Okay? And it was a departure from the Catholic Church and Catholic doctrine. Because of the emphasis of sound doctrine based on the Bible, the Protestant Reformation was born, and a technology, the Gutenberg Printing Press, which was the first printing press which allowed Bibles to be printed for the common man, so the common man now had direct access to the Word of God, and that fueled the fires of revival, which came to the United States through the Pilgrims and Puritans. The evangelical movement came out of the Protestant Reformation. The Bible-believing church came out of the Protestant Reformation. And, wake up, the first great awakening in America. Okay, so now we're thousands of years after the initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. Now we're in the 16th century. That's a long time. And we have the Protestant Reformation, which was an example of a biblical revival and an outpouring of the Holy Spirit way, way, way after the upper room experience of the disciples. So the power of the Holy Spirit is continuing to be poured out. I don't, know, I don't understand how you could disagree with that, if you know history and you know your Bible. So, this swept into the United States. So the pilgrims and Puritans arrived here, and they were Bible-believing, evangelical pilgrims and Puritans. They birthed, God birthed a, an authentic and biblical first great awakening in America that turned America upside down and caused the birth of our Constitution and Bill of Rights and an America as a free nation. 
The spiritual father of the First Great Awakening was Jonathan Edwards. They had miracles, signs and wonders. People were sobbing and crying and shrieking. Yeah, look, wake up. Take, take a deep drink of the fresh air. These revivals that were solidly biblical, like the First Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening, people act, acted a little nutty. But you can't reject the validity of the, the Bible or, or a, a revival. You can't reject the validity of a revival based on whether or not people go into highly emotional states. It's just part of the process. It's like, I'm a father. I've been in the birthing room three times with my wife. Where she, and three times, excuse me, I've been in the birthing room two times with my wife. And uh, one time she had twins, and one time uh, she had a boy. So we have three children. Now, nobody prepared me for the birthing room. Nobody prepared me for the birthing room, and it was my fault because I didn't attend the last couple of Lamaze classes. And, and to be honest, for some quirky reason, I had never seen a film or anything of the, the, a full birth, you know, and just how messy it is. So there I am wearing this white, it looks like a biological warfare uh, plastic suit thing. You know? And there's blood everywhere. And then the doctor hands me the scissors and tells me to cut the umbilical cord. And, uh, Ladies, you know what I'm talking about. Guys, some of you know what I'm talking about. And it is the most, you know, it's disgusting. It's messy. It's gooky. It's I was just like, ugh. I mean, I wasn't prepared. I thought it was going to be a very sanitary, a very uh, demure kind of experience. Well, guess what? Revivals are very much like when a woman gives birth. Like when a woman gives birth, that's why Jesus Christ used the parable of the signs of the times. It's messy. But the messiness of giving birth is part of the legitimate birthing process. It's not supposed to be this sanitized, perfectly neat uh, happening. It's messy. Babies scream. Wives scream loudly because they're in pain. So, are you tracking with me? Now, the great biblical revivalists, the fathers, the Bible-believing fathers of the evangelical movement in England and, and in America, people like Whitfield and uh, others, they, and Jonathan Edwards, they solidly preached the Word of God, solidly preached the Word of God. John Wesley was another one in the Wesleyan revivals. They solemnly preached the Word of God, but when God began to pour out His Spirit mightily, but biblically and authentically, on the crowds, there was shrieking and moaning and, and messy stuff. And you do not have the right to dismiss a legitimate biblical revival because you have a personal bias that maybe I too would have shared, a personal uh, bias against the messiness and craziness of it all. Just because they're shouting and screaming and stuff, I hate to break it to you, I hate to pop the, your balloon, does not mean for a moment that, that that's a demonic revival and they're moving under the demonic power of a Kundalini spirit. Learn how to divide the Word of God properly. 
I was in the New Age. I experienced the Kundalini spirit, cosmic consciousness. I became one with the universe. I was into that stuff for 10 years, man. I've been there and back. You understand what I'm saying? And I know the difference between the Holy Spirit of Almighty God, the triune God, God the Creator, Jesus Christ, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I know the difference between the Holy Spirit of God, who is Jesus, and a demonic spirit. So don't go calling every revival that you don't understand with your finite mind a demonic revival. Discern the spirits, but that requires that you maturely and accurately discern the spirits. Now, yes, it is true. It is definitely true that there are counterfeit revivals and false prophets and false teachers. But the way you know they're false prophets and they're false revivals is because they're operating in contradiction to the Word of God. They're preaching thoroughly non-biblical doctrine, and their revival is motivated and energized by demons. That is absolutely true. So on the other side, we have to be discerning and careful, because the evil one goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may destroy. And I think as mature believers in Jesus Christ, we would share our mutual biblical responsibility to be on high alert against the devil uh, attempting to infiltrate Christian movements and Christian revivals. Because I have seen and been in places where the devil has attempted to infiltrate Christian revivals and Christian movements. Are we together on this? Okay, now, the critical thing. So we had, people always say, can't happen, no revival, no signs and wonders, no outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Can't happen, can't happen. But God is God, not me or you. And it does happen, and it has happened. It happened with the Wesleyan revivals, the revivals of George Whitfield. These guys were the gold standard of biblical theology. And the crowds they preached to when revival came, they shrieked, not everybody, a lot of people quietly, probably the majority of the people were quiet and, and, and well-behaved, so to speak. But there was that contingent, probably the people that needed Jesus the most, who were shouting and shrieking and everything else. Now, I have, from the pulpit, numerous times, including one time I was ministering to a high-level pastor's conference in Kuala Lumpur, uh, Malaysia. Uh, and this is a huge geographic area, and pastors traveled, you know, for, for endless hours to come. I was the featured speaker and teacher, uh, and I would teach and minister to these 500 pastors. And while I was preaching and ministering to, to, to them, uh, there was this girl kind of writhing on the ground. She was moaning and groaning. Um, but she was disrupting me. She was so loud with her groaning and moaning and slithering on the floor, and I'm not trying to be cute, that's what she was doing, um, that I, I, found, I found myself in competition, her screaming and shouting on the floor, and I'm trying to preach a biblical message. And I, in love, gently asked assistance pastors in Malaysia to please remove her from the, the main auditorium 
And if she needs ministry, then minister to her privately in, in an adjacent room. And these pastors in Malaysia, a whole bunch of them, got upset at me. They were upset at me because they thought I was quenching the spirit and that she needed to do that. And I corrected them gently and love the pastors. I simply said that why would God send somebody like me all the way from America? Why would many of you who have come in from other nations and remote parts of Malaysia, why would you all come here to hear me speak and preach and teach and then enter a room where you can't hear me preach and teach? Because someone is trying is overriding my voice by screaming and shouting. The Bible even talks about this exact situation. God is not the author of confusion. So you're not going to have somebody who's a preacher and teacher preaching and teaching. It just doesn't work if simultaneously somebody is screaming and moaning and shouting. And that was, you know, I spoke gently to the pastors. You know, I lovingly but firmly admonished them. And, and I stand by what I do. You can't just let somebody run amok. Especially, and every situation is different. Okay, so it doesn't, that doesn't mean I think everything, I don't, that doesn't mean I think everything's an open door for chaos. Now, the other thing is, uh, so revival swept America, and the Pilgrims and Puritans also emphasized learning, knowledge, intellectualism, business, economics, and all kinds of things. Then there was the second Great Awakening in America with Charles Finney, who was formerly a Freemason, got converted to Jesus Christ. And Charles Finney, he set, you know, endless cities and towns on fire with the Holy Spirit. And the power of God would come down on cities that he preached and towns that he preached. And yes, there was shrieking and moaning, but people were saved and delivered. And uh, it helped of free the slaves, and end racial tensions. So that was the second Great Awakening. And then, depending, you know, whether you want to accept it or not, we had a, a evangelical movement in the 60s, like with Campus Crusade for Christ and Billy Graham and, and, and many prominent Baptists, and, and they had a biblical revival that swept the world. Uh, and they, you know, don't believe in anything close to Pentecostal doctrine, but they would recognize that the Spirit of God was moving powerfully through them. And then there was the Jesus movement, which was kind of a mini-revival. These were hippies that were into all kinds of stuff. They were getting saved and delivered from demons. And then finally, we hope and pray that as we seek God together, we will have a legitimate and biblical Third Great Awakening where God will pour out the power of his Holy Spirit on the church and turn the tide of a spiritual battle. So I tried to do this quickly, but in summary, let me say this. There is a thorough justification. There is a thorough biblical justification for platforming the argument that we should be open based on what the Scripture says and teaches totally. All experience comes under the authority of the Bible. Given that, we should be open to the possibility of God pouring out to whatever degree he chooses after legitimate repentance. I'm not avoiding repentance. Repentance is a prerequisite in opening the door to an authentic biblical 
revival and authentic biblical third great awakening. It begins with repentance. And, and, and a key area of repentance before the Lord is to repent to the Lord for uh, adulterating his doctrine, repent to the Lord for our sin of unbelief, and any other sins that we know that we have in our hearts or we know that we have collectively. This is Paul McGuire. The spiritual battle is raging all around us. If the demonic powers and the Luciferian elite, because they do believe in harnessing supernatural demonic power and (laughs) infusing it into the earth, if they have their way, you and I and our children will go into the most brutal uh, captivity that is beyond any of our ability to comprehend. It will be like living in an endless nightmare. That's one path before us. If we choose to obey God and repent of our sins, we can cry out to God for a biblical and authentic revival, and God will pour out his Holy Spirit and give us the power to turn the tide of the spiritual battle. But it's up to us. This is the purpose of Paul McGuire Ministries and Paradise Church. I need your help critically at this time. We're trying to launch uh, certain outreach programs forward that I don't want to discuss publicly for certain reasons. But I need your help with your donations and contributions. I need your help with your prayers and your intercessory prayers. And I need your help by choosing, asking you to choose volunteering to spread our message far and wide. God bless you. This is Paul McGuire. Visit PaulMcGuire.us. God bless you, and thank you for listening.